might like to uh, flip back in your Bibles to page 228, because we're going to look uh, at this 18th chapter of 1 Samuel. We're continuing our uh, uh, sermon series on 1 Samuel and the life of David. Uh, And we're continuing from last week. Um, Chapter divisions. Um, The divisions between the chapters in the Bible, you might know this already, but they're a 13th century invention. They're not part of the original text. And because they don't belong in the original text, occasionally they can be misleading. Of course, we find them useful because chapters help us navigate our way around the Bible and know where to read. But sometimes they can be misleading when they create a break in our reading or a break in our thinking, um, disconnecting elements of a story that are meant to hang together. And as we begin the 18th chapter of 1 Samuel, um, we see that we remember that last week we, we looked at the story of David and Goliath, the last of three stories that introduce us to David. The David who, after God, is perhaps the most important person in the Old Testament. And as we move into chapter 18, we need to see that we're actually still on the battlefield. As soon as David had finished talking to Saul, Jonathan, Saul's son, came up to David. And in our Pew Bibles, it tells us that Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. Now, actually, the Hebrew says something quite different, and it's captured well by uh, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which actually is not that new anymore. It's a very old translation. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, by the way, it's uh, it's, uh, much older, and it tends to be a fairly hyper-literal translation of the Scriptures, translating word by word, and it's a really good translation to have at your fingertips if you want to find out what the Hebrew or of the Old Testament or the Greek of the New Testament really says. Um, the translation that we use, the uh, NIV, the uh, New International Version, 2011, it balances the need to translate the words with the need to balance, it balances that with the need to translate the meaning and to use forms of English that we recognize and understand. So the NIV is an easier translation Uh, um, uh, to read. Um, I guess what this means is, if the question is, what does the Bible say, have a look at the NASB. If the question is, what does the Bible mean, then perhaps the NIV is the better one to go with. But what does the NASB say? Well, actually, for verse 1 of this chapter, it quite simply says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And that's what the Hebrew says. It's not spirit. The Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. But it's rather, it's the Hebrew word for soul. Nefesh, which means soul, life, being, essence of a person. So what do we work out? Well, actually, what we work out is there was this deep, intimate connection between David and Jonathan. They got each other. They bonded. They were literally soulmates. And we shouldn't be surprised at that. We haven't met Jonathan before, not in this sermon of series, not in this series of sermons. Um, but actually, quite a bit has already been said about Jonathan in the previous chapters of First Samuel. Jonathan is Saul's oldest son, 
And he, like David, is a natural-born military leader. And, like David, uh, he is a man of deep faith in the Lord. Um, he, is, he is, just like David, he is a truly, truly great young man. Equal to David. As leader, equal to David in faith in Yahweh, in the Lord. And in chapter 14, a few chapters earlier, um, uh, uh, Jonathan and his armor bearer, they climbed up this steep cliff, just the two of them. They, they climbed up this steep cliff to single-handedly take on this Philistine garrison. And in doing so, they killed 20 men. And earlier, Jonathan had said to his armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. In other words, when, when God is on our side, it doesn't matter how many of us there are. He can save through one. He can save through two. Um, with, with, with God on our side, who could possibly stand against us? And as a result of that defeat, on that day that Jonathan led, um, the Philistines panicked the whole army and a great battle took place. A battle that Israel won. And uh, you'll be able to spot for yourselves, I would imagine if you are here last week and you remember David and Goliath, there are many similarities between the David-inspired uh, event and the Jonathan-inspired event. Many similarities. In both cases, a young man puts himself into a position of extreme vulnerability in order to fight an enemy, an enemy who, it would appear, is overwhelmingly more powerful. In doing so, that young man inspires the armies of Israel to follow his example, and he leads them into a major victory. And in both cases, the young man is a man of faith. He will totally depend upon the Lord because he knows the Lord is totally dependable. And what David did with Goliath was, was very similar to what Jonathan himself had already done. And it is no wonder that on that day when Jonathan saw David act on the battlefield that day, killing Goliath, he immediately recognized a like-minded friend. So let's think about friendship for a moment. Um, C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes, quote, Friendship arises when two or more companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste that others do not share. And that, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure or burden. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. Unquote. Well, Jonathan and David uh, singularly may have believed that they were the only one. Well, am I the only one who gets it around here? That with the Lord, with us, we can do anything? For nothing is impossible for God? Am I the only one who gets that? But when each saw the other one, they realized, hey, he gets it too. And that was their first love, serving the Lord. Their second love was killing Philistines. Which is kind of neat, really, for them. 
Um, Eugene Peterson, um, uh, he considers friendship to be sacramental. And uh, he's using the word loosely. Um, what he means is um, in the sense that the sacraments, in a sense, the, the bread and wine of Holy Communion, the water of baptism, they are physical things that remind us of God's love. And he's using the word sacramental loosely, not quite the way that I would use it, but actually I really like his point. Because it actually is often through friends that the love of God comes to us with skin on, so to speak, and we, we get the love of God through friends. It is through friends that we experience that particular love of God, that love of God that loves us for who we are and gets us. Because not always everybody does. But God does. And it is through friends that we experience that type of love. It is through friends that we often experience the encouragement of God. And it is through friends we sometimes experience the presence of God and not infrequently the provision of God as we help each other out. And so friendship in the Bible is an extremely important thing. And this friendship between David and Jonathan is going to be an extremely important thing, indeed of saving importance in David's life. Jonathan is going to save David's life at risk to his own. For greater love has no one than this, that we lay down our lives for our friends. The Bible, uh, correspondingly and unsurprisingly, has a very high view of friendship. Everybody needs friends and everybody ought to have friends. The wise person chooses his friends carefully. And the love of a friend can be better than the love of a brother. To quote Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. Talking about economies of scale, I guess. You know, work together and you get a better profit. Continuing, if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they can keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. It's really good to have one friend or two friends. That's a really good thing. Friendship is a wonderful thing from God. It has a very high place in the Bible. In contrast, we live in a society that tends to elevate romantic relationships to the place of the ideal. I was uh, watching an episode of Big Bang Theory recently. Uh, give me a nod if you know what Big Bang Theory is. That, that's great. It's this American sitcom about four young friends, and they're all scientists, and they all hang out together. Um, they possibly do work in their spare time, I'm not sure. But they all hang out together, and they have a great time, and I love it. And in this particular episode I was watching the other day, um, three of the four friends, they have girlfriends, but one of them, his name is Raj, he doesn't have a girlfriend and he feels really sorry for himself that that is so, particularly because Valentine's Day is coming up, the day when you always feel bad when 
you don't have a romantic relationship. So Raj organizes an event at the local comic book store for every one of his um, many acquaintances who, because they are science nerds, don't have girlfriends. And at that event, he makes this great speech about how, you know, how, how, society, how society writes us off you know, and it tells us we're worthless because we don't have that romantic attachment or relationship. But, he says, we should stick together and celebrate true friendship because with a true friend you are never alone. And you always know that you're loved with a true friend. And uh, everybody responded with this resounding wave of applause and everybody loved his speech. However, just a few minutes later, Raj happens to meet one of the very few girls at this party and he asks her out for a coffee and she agrees and they beat a hasty retreat for the door. And as Raj leaves uh, this party that he has initiated and, and he calls out over his shoulder, he says to his single party-goer mates, See you later, losers! And the whole thing holds up a mirror to our current obsession with romantic, sexualized relationships, including, and especially in Christian circles, our obsession with marriage. The, the way that we feel sorry for ourselves and sorry for others if we're not involved in a romantic, sexual relationship. But actually, the Bible does not encourage us in this. Nor is it necessarily a friend to romance. Um, there are a handful of instances in the Old Testament where people are described as falling in love, and it doesn't always go well. Let's think about those instances. Who have we got? Well, we've got Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and Shechem. Didn't go well. It was a train wreck. Then there's Amon and his half-sister Tamar. Disaster. And Michal and David, in this chapter, that's not going to end well. It's not going to be a happy thing. It's going to be something that God is going to need to save David from in the end. And whenever in the Old Testament a couple is described as falling in love, or an individual is seen to be falling in love in the contemporary romantic sense, we are always en route to a disaster. The Old Testament is not friendly towards the kind of romantic infatuation that is celebrated as love in, for example, Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet. That kind of infatuation, which is called love, uh, um, that, as in Romeo and Juliet, leads to disaster. In fact, we'd probably think that the Old Testament was condemning of romantic love, if it wasn't for the fact that this whole picture I've just painted is balanced by a book in the Old Testament called Song of Songs. Song of Songs, it's an eight-chapter-long celebration of romantic sexual love in the context of a couple who are either engaged to be married or have just been married. And Song of, Song, Song of Songs expects engaged couples to be romantically in love. In other words, to have the hots for each other big time. But it also expects them to be friends, true friends. To, to, quote, to quote the girl in that book, 
uh, she, she says in chapter 5, his mouth, she's talking about her beloved, and she says, his mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Lover and friend. And that, I'm taking it from Scripture, is a really good recipe to find the right one to marry. Marry someone with whom you get on well with as though they were a like-minded, close, close friend. Marry someone who is a natural best friend. But also make sure they are someone who you desperately want to kiss and rip their clothes off. Both things are important. It's worth pointing out that David and Jonathan did not have that kind of relationship. And in our day and age, it is frequently suggested that they did. And this suggestion, apart from being nonsense, actually the suggestion which you'll find in commentaries and discussions on the relationship between David and Jonathan, it's, it's a frequently made comment that perhaps that kind of relationship did exist between them it's a nonsense suggestion it doesn't hang with the text at all but when the suggestion is made it holds up a mirror to ourselves it shows us what we consider to be important rather than what the bible considers to be important that we're so hung up over sexualized relationships friendship it's about friendship and friendship is exalted in the Bible as important and good. What can we take from this discussion? Well, we should make a note to value friends and friendship and to make time and space for both. Now, actually, as it happens, as I was typing that sentence, one of my closest friends rang me on my mobile phone, and I ignored it, thinking that it was an irritating distraction from my work. However, looking at the sentence I'd just written, I got up from my computer and rang my friend back. And we just chewed the fat, uh, just compared notes, just chatted for a few minutes. Um, Actually, it's hard, isn't it? We're busy and many of us are exceedingly time poor. But we should ask God to open our eyes to those who need friends. And I know, personally, the power of unexpected friendship. Friendships that are begun because somebody is conscious of God's agenda. And when I was growing up, we moved around a, a heck of a lot. And I went to so many different schools, um, on average about 18 months, and the longest was three years. And I was always having to make new friends. And um, something that, that really affected me greatly was that often Christian kids from church homes were the first to befriend me, even if they were called. Cool which was remarkable because I wasn't. Um, and um, uh, they, I, think, I think they befriended me because, because they came from church families and, and they heard about God's love, and including outsiders as insiders, and it made an impact. And a few years later, what do you, have to, what do you know? I became a Christian. Um, when we befriend someone who is without friends... When we befriend someone who didn't actually expect a friend, then that is a powerful witness, not only to them, but also to others around us. And how, therefore, how, therefore, could it be possible for someone to 
visit a church and not find a friend. We need to keep our eyes open and ask the Lord what he's doing. Um, There is something else um, to note about Jonathan's response to David. Reading from verse 3, and again I'm going to read from the NASB translation. Verse 3, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan takes off of himself every item that speaks of his own status, his royal robe, his armor, his sword and his belt, and he places them on David. Jonathan, I think, is doing a few things. One of the things that Jonathan is doing is that he's taking David into his life as his brother, putting royal stuff on him, announcing, hey, you're a prince too, you're a son of the king. But that's true, but more than that, in putting this stuff on David, he's taking this stuff off himself. He's taking off all the royal status stuff in order order to put it on David. And I think that's a really good picture of conversion because Jonathan actually is converted. He, He gets it. He saw the sign. David killed the enemy of God's people. He's... He's the anointed king and savior. He's he's the Messiah. He's the Christ. And in the presence of the king, you strip yourself of all symbols of authority. Because they're not, that's just not, that's, that's not appropriate in the presence of the king. Just as Moses stripped himself of sandals in the presence of the king, when he found himself standing on holy ground. Holy ground, in other words, ground set apart for God's exclusive use. So he took off the symbols of his authority to walk the land and discarded them. You might be a major, you might be a general, you might be a captain, but in the presence of God, we all take off our hats and bear arms. Jonathan, therefore, is a convert, and he offers to David his obedience, allegiance, and loyalty. And that's what we do when we come to faith in Christ. We strip ourselves of any crowns and we give them to the Lord because actually we can't be king any longer, not king of our own lives, not in the presence of the true king. He's the king of our lives. This is a picture of conversion. Jonathan is a convert. The rest of the chapter looks at Saul's response to David. Saul is also a believer, but he's not a convert. Oh, he gets that he's king all right. He's just not happy about it. What does Saul do? He takes David into his inner circle, keeping him very close at hand, not letting him return home. David is a member of his household now, whether David likes it or not. And he promotes him, making him a commander of a thousand. And this last move seemed to please everyone. So Saul gets the credit and looks good, at least temporarily. But then there was that song that the women sang. Saul has slayed his thousands. David has slain tens of thousands. And that really got under his skin, didn't it? Boy, that irritated him. And why? Well, because David made him look bad. Or at least that's what Saul assumed. And this is actually precisely the same motivation as behind the very first murder in the Bible. Genesis chapter 4 Cain murdered his younger brother Abel. Why? Because 
Cain thought Abel made him look bad. Well, in our story, not long after this, Saul tries to kill David himself, tries to pin him to the wall with a javelin that just happened to be at hand, and David evaded him not once but twice. And Saul interpreted this event for himself, and he was right. He thought, God loves David, and he's forsaken me. Or more accurately, the Lord is with David, and he has departed. He is no longer with or for me. And he was right. Sometimes when people think that God is against them, they're right. And we see sin at work very powerfully in Saul, don't we? Sin makes people treat other people like things. And that's how Saul spends the rest of the chapter. He spends the rest of the chapter treating people like objects. Saul, in his fierce desire to destroy the Lord's anointed, he uses everyone. He uses his daughters. He uses Merab. Here is my eldest daughter, Merab. Only go to battle against the Philistines for me and be valiant. Those of us who were here last week uh, will remember and recognize that actually Saul is twisting an oath. When Goliath was strutting his stuff and making his challenge, and all the armies of Israel were shaking in their boots and soiling their linen ungarments, Saul promised his daughter, as well as great riches and tax exemption, to whoever might defeat him. But Saul didn't keep his promise, did he? Now it's all kind of neatly forgotten once David takes the scene. Now he's pretending to keep this promise, but he's changing it. And he's doing this in the hope that the combination of son-in-law status plus exposure to Philistines will prove fatal. It's reasonable to assume that it would sooner or later. David would be a high-status target on the battlefield. But David dodges. This is the second time he dodges. He dodges again. He dodges cleverly. He uses humility. Um, David points out that given the low status of his own family, Saul would be dishonoring himself if he connected himself to David through marriage. And David is discovering that there is power in weakness. David is discovering the power of humility. Saul can't argue with that. And he breaks his promise again and marries poor old Merib to somebody else. When Saul learns that his younger daughter Michal has fallen in love with David, Saul is delighted, reasoning that now he has a second chance to put David into mortal danger. Well, in addition to his attempt to, in addition to using his daughters as, as objects, to using the Philistines as murder weapons, Saul now uses his attendants, his staff, he commissions them as spies. He uses his servants to find out what David is saying and thinking and also to set before David an irresistible challenge, 100 Philistine foreskins to be used as a dowry or as a bride price. This gives the Philistines one chance in a hundred. Surely one chance in a hundred, one of them can kill David. But David goes out with his men and he kills 200. David himself doubles the odds. And so he marries Michal. And Saul becomes more and more afraid of David. A couple of things I think need to clarification, even at risk of repeating things I've said in previous weeks. Uh, but one thing that does need 
clarification is Saul is again described as having an evil spirit from God that attacks him forcefully from time to time. Um, this is a picture of demonization. It happens from time to time in both testaments. This is not to suggest that God has a dark side or that God has an evil spirit as well as a holy spirit. It is a way of affirming that whilst Saul has opened himself up to demonic intrusion, this ultimately is from God, who is sovereignly in charge over all things. Um, the word prophesying in verse 10 can confuse us because we normally associate the word prophesying with the Holy Spirit. Prophesying usually means intelligible speech inspired by God. However, really, actually, the word just means any inspired speech and can apply just as well to speech inspired by demons. And we see that happen in the 22nd chapter of 1 Kings. Prophesying can apply to speech inspired by demons just as much as it can apply to speech inspired by God. What would Saul's prophesying have looked like? Almost certainly an uncontrolled and uncontrollable rage. He was ranting about this thing and that thing and how you, know, you, you, got a, you want a decent coffee in this place, you've got to make it yourself. He was just totally out of control in his rage and in his anger. And why can't this get a sim simple thing done? The Bible repeatedly warns us to watch out for anger. Anger has its place, but all accounts must be settled by sundown. Did you know that? All accounts must be settled by sundown. As Paul puts it in his letter to the Ephesians, when you're angry, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Don't give the devil an open door. As Jesus puts it, Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Or as he says in another place, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. All emotions are stimulating. I don't know which emotion you're into. Uh, it could be any of them. But all emotions are stimulating and therefore addictive, like caffeine or nicotine. We get addicted to this emotional response or that emotional response because emotions like anger are stimulants and they make us feel awake and alive. But we must be very careful about not being addicted to anger and about settling all accounts by sundown. That's, that's one thing to talk about, Saul's spiritual predicament. Another thing to talk about is this Israelite obsession with killing Philistines, which we may encounter as barbaric, and this whole thing about collecting foreskins, which we are likely to hear as both cruel and disgusting, as well as barbaric. What are we to make of this? Well, what we need to do is we need to keep in mind that these Israelites belong to God by way of a different covenant to the one by which we belong to God. They belong to God by a covenant that God made with the descendants of Abraham through Moses. And according to that covenant, 
God would spread throughout the whole world the saving knowledge of God by his holy and chosen nation, a nation living according to God's holy rules. The Philistines, what they're trying to do is they're trying to wipe Israel off the map for political and economic gain. And whether they understood it or not, when they try to do this, they are standing in opposition to God's saving purposes in the world. Whether or not they understood that's what they were doing. The Philistines were destroyers and tormentors of Israel. To circumcise the dead bodies of Philistine soldiers would have been like attaching yellow stars to the uniforms of killed SS Nazi soldiers in World War II. It might be grim. It might be disgusting. But it is poetic justice for their rebellion against God's saving purposes in the world. And actually, this whole passage is about poetic justice. It's all about God's ironic judgment. Because the passage today mocks Saul. The harder he works to destroy David, the more established David becomes in Saul's own household. Everything Saul does backfires on himself and strengthens David's position. Why does this happen? Well, actually it happens because God cannot be mocked. God is the power by which David escapes the javelin. God is the power by which David has success in every field of endeavor to which he's commanded by Saul. God is the power by which David escapes every snare and trap laid for him. God is the power by which God takes every curse that is, that is said against David and turns it for David into a blessing while bringing it back upon the person who cursed as a curse. And that's the business that God is in. God turns curses into blessings for those who trust in him. This is what the Lord says through David, his servant. This is what the Lord says. I will instruct you and teach you the way that you should go. I will counsel you and my eye will be upon you. By the way, that's not like Saul's eye. That was an evil eye. The Lord says, I will counsel you with my loving eye always watching you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the one who trusts in me, says the Lord. Psalm 32, verse 9 and 10. Amen. The Lord be with you. Um, we're going to um, thank you Stephen we're going to uh, while we digest the sermon a little sing, uh, uh, sing some more prayers um, and we'll start with